G'day guys, welcome to episode 107, that's 107 interviews with spearfishing experts, authorities and characters from around the world. Today it's Albie Cook's turn, former president of the Central Coast Sea Lions and the Coffs Blue Water Classic winner, I think in maybe 2016, but he's a competitive uh, Spiro, freediver, instructor, well-traveled, and uh, he makes a really big effort with the juniors around his club, and uh, he comes he, he comes and dobbed in from a listener just like you, this time by Alex Hamilton, so um, thanks Alex for the recommendation, and guys, if you have recommended guests in the past, don't worry, I have got them in a spreadsheet, I've got like maybe 100 names on there, but I will get to them at some stage in the future, so um yeah, nah, awesome. Keep them coming. And um, today's intro is pretty short, pretty sweet, pretty simple. But um, Albie and I get into the nitty gritty today about taking you guys out diving. So if you're an experienced Spiro and you you do take out the odd um, uh, new diver, then you might get a couple of points or tips or ideas today about how you can do that in a in a, in a maybe a slightly better way. But uh, you know, it's, it is a chore and a big ups to every single you know, experienced guy that is taking out new people and teaching them the ropes because someone's got to do it. I and mean, we all started somewhere and, um, and uh, yeah, it's awesome that we've got guys around like Albie that regularly go out of their way and give their time up to do this. So, hey, also a quick review today on iTunes. Uh, it's got a really good title. Two show with top blokes. I think he's trying to say top, top show, but. Anyway, Robson91, he says, this is what I listen to every commute, I'm not with the missus. No better way to stay entertained than listening to some interesting spirit interviews with these funny guys, love their work. So, funny guys, I'm definitely missing my offside turbo, he is um, more than half the funny of the show, but nevertheless, I carry it alone for a little while, And um, but he'll be back at some stage in the future, I'm sure. Hey, um, hope you are... You are enjoying the show. We're 107 episodes in, and it, we couldn't do it without our patrons. So, look, patrons are funding this show. If you go to patreon.com forward slash noobspero, you'll see our Patreon page. We've raised $520 so far from patron listeners just like you, and they are sponsoring the Shrek and Turbo Melbourne Noob Spiro trip end of this year at some stage. It's loosely penciled in for September. We want to get down there. We're going to hang out with a couple of guys that have um, been on the show before, and um, Sven Franklin and Eckhart Bankenstein, and um, hopefully do a live interview there at some stage. Maybe get into the um, club spearfish down there as well, and then um, hang out with some of those boys. But yeah, hey, today's episode brought to you by patron listeners just like you. Patreon.com forward slash New Sparrow. Thanks, guys. Let's hook in. Albie, here we go. Adreno Spearfishing are today's proud sponsor of the Noob Spiro podcast. They stock a huge range of equipment that you can find in Brisbane, Sydney, Melbourne and now Perth. That's right, spearfishing.com.au have got a huge range of gear. I encourage you to get along, use the code Noob Spiro, N-O-O-B-S-P-E-A-R-O and save yourself $20 on every purchase over $200 when you shop online. So g'day Noobers, welcome to the New Spirit Podcast. Today I'm joined by Alistair Cook, who's um, who's just been sitting there listening to an awkward silence, but uh, and despite some early technical difficulties, it's awesome to have you on, Albie. So uh, how are you going, mate? Yeah, I'm actually really good, thanks, uh, Shrek. Really good. Thanks, buddy, yeah. Cool. So you're from Central Coast, and you are a member there at the Central Coast Sea Lions Club. You've been dog dobbed in by, by one of your dive buddies and fellow members there in Alex Hamilton. 
And yeah, uh, and so I'd be keen to sort of get your take on how you know Alex and um, and a little bit about maybe the the club you guys both belong to. Yeah, okay. Well, um, I suppose I'll just start off with um, Alex is a very good mate of mine. I think he joined the club about two or three years ago. He came down from Coffs Harbour, as far as I know. I oh, actually no, sorry, he was actually from Sydney. Don't hold that against them. No, yeah, he was actually from Sydney, and he and he moved up here, and he was looking to to join a club, and yeah, somehow he joined the Sea Lions. And at first, I don't think he really wanted to join. He wanted to just maybe continue diving with his club in Sydney. But when he met a couple of us and realised that we're not a bad bunch of blokes, he um yeah, he, he signed up, and everybody's been really good friends ever since, which has been fantastic. Um. But in terms of the Sea Lions, I think it's actually one of the oldest clubs in Australia, as far as I know. I'm, yeah, right. We'll have to get that confirmed with you know someone like Mel Brown, but I think it's it is actually the oldest club. I think we're even older than the Neptunes, but yeah, don't quote me on that. But I think it mm. started back in 1952 or 1950 something, which is uh, fair fair while ago. It's going back a little while. So um, I mean, you would have only been in your teenage years then when the club started out. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Pretty much. <laughs> no, exactly. No, no. No, no, I'm just teasing. Um, look, tell us a little bit about yourself. Um, so you live there on the central coast. Which part of the coast do you live on? And um, and did, is that where you got started spearfishing? I live at uh, a place called Terrigal, pretty well known, right on the beach there. Pretty much lived here my whole life. Uh, moved around a little bit. Yeah, it's a fantastic place. So yeah, no, I did actually start uh, diving on the central coast here. I started, um, oh, actually, I started back spearing in about 1997 with the club. Um, Jeepers. Yeah, so it's over 20 years ago now. And yeah. the way that it actually came about was, believe it or not, well, the sea lines actually disbanded for about 10 or 15 years. It actually fell apart. Okay. It was around about 1985 for some reason. I think lack of interest and, you know, times were changing and, and whatever. And the club actually completely fell apart and there was nobody there to run it. So it wasn't until 1996 or 1997 that a couple of guys – by the name of Andrew Pierce and Glenn Bath, uh, actually decided to get the club going again. The first, well, this is probably before Facebook and probably infancy of internet and all that sort of stuff. Yeah. They actually put an ad in the paper. Okay. Um, and it said, you know, do you like to dive or have you ever thought about spearfishing? You know, want, want to come and join a, a club comp? So that's how I actually found out about it. Um, well, a friend of mine actually mentioned it to me and he said, oh, we should go and sign up and, and see what they got to offer. So. That was back in, yeah, as I say, 1997. Um, I'd never ever speared before. It was almost just a, basically a, pro, a progression from, from surfing, really. Just had the, had the old um, bodyboarding gear and, you know, the old wetsuit and bodyboarding fins. And, and, um, and then a friend of mine said, oh, you should try spearing. I think he'd ever done it with a hand spear. Yeah. Uh, a friend of mine, Neil. I watched him and another mate go out one day and I just went around for a snorkel. I didn't even have a hand spear at all. We just snorkeled around. I think it was up at Port Stephens in the in the bay there at Shoal Bay. Okay. Um, I don't think they actually caught anything, but I just remember, oh, this is pretty cool. This is, sounds like a bit of fun. Yeah. Um, and then I think it was about a month later when Neil said, oh, there's an ad in the paper about um, joining up a club. So I think that's how it all started, really. Yeah, right. I mean, it's a beautiful part of the coastline. I haven't even been down to your part of the world, believe it or not, but um, sort of nestled in there between Newcastle and Sydney. It's quite a long stretch of coastline and there's some beautiful um, looking beaches and headlands and stuff along there. Uh, so you went along to your first club meeting. What happened? Oh, so the first time we actually went was to a competition um, and it was up at Catherine Hill Bay. I think at the time I just bought a hand spear 
Um, I'd probably only been spearing a couple of times. I still had, I still used um, bodyboarding fins. I had a uh, wetsuit that was probably worth about fifty dollars from a secondhand wetsuit, like a little bodyboarding wetsuit. Um, yeah. My mate was the same. I would have been probably on my peas uh, at the time, and I think we rocked up. I rocked up in an old Tirana that I had. Um, okay. <laughs> and met some of the met, met some of these blokes from the club, and at the time it was Glenn Bath. He was the president. It was just a rock hop, and we went out, and yeah, I think I got a few. Or we both got a few laughs from some of the other guys, you know, diving in wetsuits and and bodyboard fins and hand spears. But yeah, we went out for a couple of hours, and I don't think I even got a fish. Maybe I did. I can't remember. But yeah, it was good, really good fun though. And I think I remember coming back in, and <clears throat> this guy Glenn Bath, he had a mullet that probably would have been about maybe a kilo and a half, a red mully, and I'd never yep. seen one that big, and I, I couldn't believe it. I just thought, this guy's an absolute legend, you know, to get one that big. I'd, I'd never seen anything like it. So, yeah, ever since then, I was uh, I was hooked, I think. Yeah, awesome. And, um, you know, the, obviously some of the older hands could see how keen you guys were. You're out there in, uh, in these bloody surfing suits, which is pretty common, you know, down the east coast of Australia. Guys get in with a hand spare and some mates. Maybe they've come from a surfing or life-saving background, and they – get in and just have a go and if you're keen and you sort of stick it out and you and and hopefully you get into a club and you get exposed to some um experienced guys that's sort of how it starts for seemingly quite a few of us so um where to from there well so how old were you so you said you're on your peas i'm guessing well i'm 40 i'm 41 now so what was that 22 years ago so yeah it would have been yeah 18 or 19 i suppose back then um yeah i just remember being on my pea plates and yeah yeah so i think after that um, they had a f- couple of competitions and I think the next competition that I ever went to, I can't remember, but they had one down at Woi Woi and it, it was a boat competition. And at the time, I think there was only one guy in the club with a boat or maybe two, but a guy by the name of Andrew Pierce, he had an old 17L Haynes Hunter. Yep. And I don't Great think boat. I'd ever been in a boat before. Uh, I'd never speared from a boat before. Anyway, I rocked up there. Andrew looked at me, he probably would have been a couple of years older than me, but you know, he'd been diving uh, probably 10 years or so. And yeah, I think the look that he gave me when I said, oh, can I get a boat ride? And oh, here I am in my bodyboard fins and hand spear. And he's sort of thinking, oh, this guy's <laughs> just an absolute joke, you know. And yeah. Anyway, <clears throat> I think somehow he, he sort of said, yeah, look, no worries, I'll take you out. And raced out down towards Sydney and we dived a couple of reefs, maybe Baron Joey and a few spots down there. And I had the best day of my life. I couldn't believe it. Yeah, I still don't know if I kept caught any fish, but yeah, had a fantastic day, and um, I think Andrew was probably thinking, "Oh, this guy's not going to persevere with it. He'll sort of maybe do one or two, one or two dives, and you never see him again." But unfortunately, I stuck around and <laughs> became it's... very good mates with him, and we've dived a lot over the last twenty years. Yeah. So, um, what was what were some of the early sort of challenges you had? Like, obviously, you you, you were battling with um, you didn't have the best equipment, and um, and you, you know, it took a while to get your first opportunity in a boat. What, what were some of the things you remember struggling with? Um, I think probably things like at the time was acquiring gear. I mean, look, I, I started, I mean, it wasn't like the early days where they had no gear at all. I mean, at least when I started, there was starting to become some good gear around. Yeah. And I think at the time there was only really one dive shop um, where you could buy gear on the Central Coast and that was... Uh, Gosford Diving Services, and there was a guy by the name of Carlo, and yeah, he was down at he was down at Yamina there, and lovely old guy. He had 
5,000 scuba dives credited to his name or something like that. So anyway, he used to sell a little bit of gear. This is the time before Adreno and um, all the internet stores and stuff. So every, everyone that wanted gear had to go down and see old Carlo. And there was only a couple of brands, I think, making wetsuits. I think Neptune was one of them. And I think at the time, there were, I think carbon fins weren't even invented or fiberglass. It was only plastic fins. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, we just started to, um, you know, grab bits and pieces and slowly upgrade the gear. And I think, yeah, moving to a proper wetsuit was a big um, a big help. And then obviously moving to even just the plastic fins, the long blade plastic fins, which I had for years, made a massive, massive difference. Yeah, for sure. Um, <clears throat> yeah, but just things like that. Are they definitely two items of equipment that you even now recommend guys spend a bit of money on? Like um, obviously wetsuit, like having the right wetsuit determines your comfort, uh, how much you can move around, um, and the, and your fins are not only you know good for getting down, but they're you know a, a safety tool as well. That kind of two of the items. Are, what, what do you think? Are they two items that you you, you get guys to pay attention to when they start? Yeah, look, 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 definitely. Um... I don't think that you need to have the best gear as soon as you start off with. I mean, look, you know, you can go and spend, you know, hundreds of dollars on, on the latest and greatest stuff, but as long as you've got a reasonably comfortable wetsuit um, that keeps you warm, that's probably the most important thing. You see a lot of guys that go out and they've got these thin wetsuits or no hood. They're using mm. the surfing surfing wetsuits like I started out with, with no hood. Yeah. And if you're diving, they're okay for summertime, but if you're diving sort of on the fringes of summer or in wintertime when it's a bit colder, the water's sort of under 20 degrees, they get cold really quick. So, yeah, definitely a good wetsuit. And, and I mean, look, the fins, uh, you know, I mean, we're blessed now with some of the technology they've got in fins with the dive bars and all that sort of stuff. But, 100%. Um, yeah, I mean, I don't think they're, you know, you can still dive. A good diver can still dive well with a pair of plastic fins or mm. even, even short fins. It doesn't really matter that much. But, yeah, I think just... Um, yeah, investing in a good pair when when the time is right and when you're ready to do it, and it's good. When you when you're three or four hundred meters out from the beach and you got a bit of current running against you, um, having a good set of fins um, definitely makes you appreciate uh, you know some of the technologists that have developed you know the fins to the point they are at today. Yeah, yeah oh look, absolutely. You know, swimming in current, and yeah, I don't think you would have been able to do some of the stuff that we do nowadays with the you know, with the carbon divers and penetrators and stuff like that, that, yeah, you can kick in the current all day and your legs don't get tired compared to the old plastic fins. But, yeah, as I say, we're just blessed with the stuff we've got nowadays. So you, you slowly upgraded your equipment. Um, I'm guessing that your freediving sort of gradually improved as well. What about hunting and things like that? Um, can you remember some of the early lessons you learned? Yeah, definitely. Um, I think... Um, just watching some of the other guys in the club, how they how they hunted and um, things like that, laying on the bottom, you know, just really taking their time to try to let the fish come to you, things like that. Watched a lot of other guys do that sort of thing, which was really really good. Yeah, I think just yeah, just watching other people that, that are really skillful. I remember you know going in a couple of competitions and you'd watch some of the good you know the better divers. I could never dive that, that deep when I first started. I think probably five or ten meters was sort of the maximum, but. I remember seeing a couple of guys from the Sydney club in a comp once and they're diving down to 15 or 20 and laying on the bottom and always sort of dreamed of being able to do it. And I think it's just a slow progression over the years of just adding a, a couple of metres here and there and improving your breath hold and, yeah, staying more relaxed in the water um, to be able to get the fish and things like that. For sure. What about what about just finding fish and choosing the right locations to go? Obviously, being around a club, um, some of the guys would give you some pointers. Can you... Um 
share a couple of those sort of tips or you know insights you had around finding ground, particularly in your yeah. early days? Yeah, um, I think I think um, I think you just got to spend time in the water and really learn your your areas, and it does take time. And obviously, if you've got people that know where to go, then you can cut a lot of you know time off off looking for things, but and looking for good ground. But I find with the central coast around where I live, there's so much reef and so much terrain and it changes all the time. You can have days where there's certain patches where there's a lot of fish in one time of year and then you can go there in wintertime and there's nothing and it's the same for, you know, wintertime you can go on the white bowlers and there's all sorts of fish there and in summertime there might be nothing there. So you just really take, you've got to really take the time to, to learn the areas. It just takes years and years and even now you're, I'm still finding new areas all the time. It's just so much reef. It goes out for miles and miles and you've got, you know, 50 k's of coastline. It's just absolutely incredible. I mean, sometimes when we've got clear water, we, we just go out to the, you know, the two and the three mile, which are quite famous reefs and they're huge areas of reef. And if the water's clear enough, we'll just put a tow line out the back of the boat and drag each other around looking for good spots. Oh, yeah, yeah. That's yeah. cool. So, you, so that's something you still love doing is exploring, finding new ground. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Just... uh yeah, we'll always find find new ground, and as I say, there's just so much reef off the coast. It's it's incredible. You can dive every day of the year and still find new new spots all the time. It's amazing. So, so you're out on this 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 two mile three mile reef, and you've got a how how far at the back is you? I'm guessing you're just hanging off a float line, a rig line. Yeah, sometimes oh, I usually hang off a rig line, but I actually got like one of those ski, you know, like for wakeboarding. Oh, yep, yep. Yeah, yep. I've done that before. So I've got the hand, like the handle that you use for wakeboarding with the ski yep. rope, and they float. Okay. So, yeah, so the, so you can hold on to that. It's really easy to hold on to with your hand and just get towed around very, very slowly. And you're probably, I don't know, five to ten meters out the back of the boat. Yep, yep. Okay. And just yeah, just tow each other around. And then when we hit, when we find a good spot, the person that's getting towed will either just let go of the rope and drop off um, and do a dive, or they'll just put their hand up and say, "Yep, you know, it's a pretty good spot here. Mark it." Yep. So we mark it on the sounder and mark it on the GPS and yeah. But as I say, we we find some spots and they're good, you know, good one day and then you can go back there a month later and there's nothing there. So yeah, yeah. But but finding those big points of structure and or just something um, you think could be good in in future. I mean, when you recognise some patterns and stuff with weather and bottom and terrain and stuff like that, and you know, with certain. Uh, prevailing conditions whether it's sea temp or um you know even just an outgoing tide or whatever then you know that spot could be good for working at a later time so exactly that sounds, that sounds cool I, I like this idea uh, i haven't done that myself um I'm, I'm kind of curious to maybe even give it a blast look um, most of the time you can't do it because the visibility doesn't allow for it you sort of need to be able to see the bottom <laughs> that's the only thing and and i think you can probably count on you know two hands how many days is, is actually clear on the central coast where you can see the bottom out off the back of the three mile i mean it's yeah. normally you know most of the time during winter time it's pretty dirty the water yeah up to you know five to seven meter visibility so it's more of a case of just going to the top of the reef the shallowest point uh anchoring up and, and jumping in and swimming around from there okay cool all right, cool. Hey, all right, Albie, so you went from relatively humble beginnings, you know, starting off like a lot of guys do on the east coast of Australia, I think, and then you've you've managed to um, win the Coffs Blue Water Classic though in the last few years. So how, how did you go from, you know, these humble origins, shore diving and just rock hopping, bashing your way around to coming out and winning, you know, a fairly prestigious competition here on the on the east coast of Australia? 
Yeah, well, I, I actually I started doing the um, Blue Water Classic. I forget what year it was, but I actually started with um, Darren Higgins. Okay. And yeah, Darren Darren's a great mate of mine, and I know Darren had done it for quite a few years in a row. And he had a boat. I, I think I don't even think I had a boat at this stage, but Darren used to go up and he loved doing the the classic. And I think one time uh, he said to me, "Oh, do you want to come up and me and you will do it together?" It was probably ten to fifteen years ago, I'd say. And I think it might have been two thousand and seven or six or something like that. So it had already been running for a few years. But so I, I went up with Darren. He had a seventeen R at the time, and I think just him and myself went up and. And we signed on, and he was telling me all about it and how hard it is to get fish, and um, <laughs> and I think it was you know pretty notorious for bad weather for the first few years that they ran it. So, so anyway, I dived with Darren, and I think at the time it was for the first couple of years that I did it, I only it was only Darren and myself. I don't even think we had a boaty, okay, which which <laughs> makes it extremely difficult to try and dive just two up in a boat. Yeah, for sure. Remember, you know, you'd get out to the spot and, and Darren, would have to, I'd have to drop Darren in and he'd, he'd sort of have half an hour in the water and then and then we'd sort of swap over and then I'd have half an hour in the water. So you, you lose a lot of comp time just <laughs> just um, Changing know, swapping over. around. Yeah, in the boat. Yeah, yeah. I, think, uh, I think I persevered for a couple of years with Darren. We had a, gr- a couple of great times. I don't think I ever did you know, really that well. Got a couple of fish. But I think I kept going up there for a few more years after that and I, I progressed to obviously taking my own boat up there with a couple of local guys uh, from down here. I think one year I died with Glen Bath, and this time we had a, a boatie. And yeah, so we progressed from that and then started to get a few more fish and learn the areas a little bit more. And, you know, sl- some years you had a good year and some you didn't. But I think that um, and I ended up diving at a couple of years with another couple of friends. We had a pretty good team. It was it was another guy, uh, Dean Williams and Jason Hardy, and we used to just basically love going up there for a trip away. We, we didn't really even you know take the comp too seriously, but we loved to get up there and go for a dive. And I think we did it for about three or four years in a row uh, every year. And we even used to have uh, a girl called Adriana. I'm not sure if you know Adriana from the Gold Coast, and she joined our team and. So we had five up in a 17, 17R, I think, with a Bodie and, yeah, we used to just go up there and, and have an absolute blast. It was great. And I think it was probably about the – I couldn't even tell you what year it was, but uh, it was probably, I don't know, 10 years ago, Ten years ago, I suppose, and it was just one of those awesome days. And I think with the Classic at the time, it was more a case of just getting a lot of small fish to win it rather okay. than, you know, trying to target huge fish. And I think – uh, the first year that I won it, I think I got five or six fish on oh, the wow. first day, but they weren't. I don't think it was big. I think I might have got a mackerel, maybe, but it was just a you know a small trevally and a tailor and a queen fish and a few other things. But you get a hundred points per fish, and yeah, it was enough to sort of put me in the lead after the first day. And I think um, the second day I backed it up again with another six fish, and it was enough uh, for me to win the comp. So I was yeah, yeah I was stoked. So part part one of the big themes that's sleeping out from your interview so far is just the fact that um, it's putting in the yards and just continuing to work year on year and, and learn as you go. Uh, a lot of it sounds very incremental and gradual. However, I'd love to pick out some of the some of the bigger lessons that you learned along the way. Um, obviously, you're talking about you know the way the comp is scored. You're getting scored well on each species, so getting a lot of species makes sense rather than going for just sheer weight of fish. Um, but what w- 
you know, blue water hunting is definitely a different style of spearfishing than a lot of people are used to. What are some of the lessons, the hard lessons you learned that have allowed you to, you know, start shooting five or six species consistently? I think just just being able to be patient, having good gear, like reasonably good gear. You don't have to have the best gear, but just having good gear and obviously working in a team with other guys that are, you know, switched on and, and, and know what's going on. Um, the other thing is, I mean, you can obviously anchor up, but a lot of the time, especially in the Blue Water Classic, we had a very good Bodie. He, you know, he was right on the ball all the time, and um, you know, we, we were, you know, you know what it's like when you're trying to trying to catch pelagic fish. A lot of the time, there's current, and you have to get up, get dropped up at the front of the current and drift down, and in exactly the right spot. You want to be on the exact right yeah, line, yeah. exactly the right spot, exact. Yeah, so you sort of mm. you sort of need that good Bodie to be able to put you on the good spots, but. Like anything, I just started off slowly, and um, I don't even think I was I was that good with the gear or anything when I first started out. But you slowly upgrade your gear and progress, you know, bit by bit, and slowly learn how to approach fish and where fish are going to be. And so, um, did did you did you start adding tools to your belt, like in terms of you know using a flasher, um, adding burley into the mix, um, you know, cho- you know, choosing the you know the 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 style of hunt, how far apart the divers need to be to, you know, not make fish fearful and things like that? Yeah, look, definitely. definitely. Look, flashes are, um, you know, a fantastic thing for um, for targeting pelagics. They don't always work depending on what the species is. I find a lot of the time it's just a matter of being sort of in the right place at the right time and um, being in the right location and just and just dropping down and just using the fish's inquisitive nature to, to you know, to swim up to you rather than trying to chase it. Yep. Um, yeah, I mean, a lot of the time, especially when you're just diving in currents, it's just a matter of, of dropping down into, you know, mid-water, whether it's 20 metres deep and just sitting at 5 or 10 metres and just drifting along and looking like you're sort of not interested. And a lot of the time that's the best way for a fish to come up and see you rather than, you know, all the time chasing and looking at things and trying to hunt things and scaring things away. Yeah, yeah I just find it's easy to just, just drift along with the current and, and uh, yeah, definitely burley. Burley's obviously fantastic. Um, finding clearer water, the burley works even better. Okay, cool. And okay, so um, well, first of all, let's just go back to flasher for a sec. What makes an effective flasher, and what species are they useful on? Um, flashers are pretty good for just about most species, I think. Obviously, they work fairly well on on kingfish. The kingies love to love to come in on a flasher. Definitely wahoo. Obviously, you know. It's a, it's yeah, it's a bit of a no-brainer for Wahoo. Um, you know, if you've got the nice blue water and the sun's glistening and it's um, it's flashing around for the Wahoo, they can't um, help but come in and have a look. They come yeah. in and have a look. Yeah, yeah. Again, you've got to have reasonably clear water for them to work. You've got to have that sunlight sort of reflecting off the off the um, off the flasher. But they work. I'm not sure if they work that well on on Spanish. Um, I think Spanish are just more of an inquisitive fish that come in. They just like to to. You know, if you're in the water column and they're, you know, you're not posing too much of a threat, they normally appear behind you. Or, you know, if you dive down to the bottom, they'll they'll come in sort of in front of you mid water. So I think they're just inquisitive. I don't mm. think really a flasher makes a real lot of difference with the Spanish, but uh, I could be wrong. Um, so, so you talked about the sunlight, um, you know, reflecting off the flasher. So when you let a flasher, you know, I've, a lot of guys use um, the flasher strung off a rooster float or some sort of float setup. How far down in the water column do you look to ha- uh, hang your flasher? 
Uh, obviously, it depends on the depth of the water and, and the visibility. I mean, if the visibility is excellent, you you hang it a little bit lower. But yeah, normally, you know, anywhere between sort of five to ten meters. Okay. You don't want to be yeah. You don't want to be going off. And I found a lot of fish will spot the spot the flasher and come up whether they're in twenty meters. I'll actually come up to the flasher as well. So it just creates that curiosity of of the of the fish and. And they come up, and I suppose if you if you set it too low, it also makes it too difficult to dive down. So <laughs> yeah. yeah, you don't want to and have it, it set at twenty meters, and <laughs> you've got to dive to twenty meters every time you want to do a dive. Yeah, that's a good point, actually. And, and I guess like with species like kingfish, it might bring them up off the bottom, and they, you know, you might only be a, a, a you know, st- st- a ten or twelve meter diver, and so you're in twenty meters of water, but it doesn't necessarily mean that you're having to dive that deep to shoot a kingfish. So it's a, there's some advantages there. Have exactly. You, have, yeah, have you thought much about flasher design in terms of um, which ones uh, look, are effective? Look, I have, I have actually made a couple of flashes. Um, I'm, I'm pretty lazy to be honest, and I think whatever it is, they work as yeah. long as they've got some sort of holographic, you know, reflective stuff on them. Um, yeah. I'm pretty. Look, I'm pretty lazy. Got a lot, lot of guys, you know, go and buy all the stuff, but most of the flashes I've had, I've just bought from Adreno. Yeah, uh, they're just easy. They're just easy, and they're already made, and they're, you know, they're relatively cheap. Mm. Um, I think the first couple of flashes, I've always left them on the boat somewhere and lost them anyway. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know, it's like, you know, I think I did a, I bought a brand new flasher once, and uh, did a, did a reef trip up on the on the barrier reef, and I think I used the thing for a couple of days and left it on the boat and never saw it again. So, <laughs> a lot, a lot of guys are, are copying the Chris Coates YouTube video where he. Um, he makes one out of a, an old wine bag. I think that's a, an effective and cheap one for, for a lot of guys. And um, I was out with some guys in the weekend they were using it. So, And it yeah. seemed to be doing the job. So, yeah. Yeah, and the old CDs work well. I know a lot of guys that use the CDs. Yeah. String them off. They tend to, I think that whatever the coating on the CD, they tend to wear off after a couple of trips. But, yeah, I don't think you have to have anything extravagant as a flasher as long as it's got four or five um, things hanging off it and something on the bottom to keep the weight down and, that's pretty much it. But, yeah, I know blokes that they make these exorbitant flashes with, you know, 50 things hanging off it and and after the first time they use it, it gets thrown in the boat and it's in a big tangle and by the time they, you know, they spend half an hour just trying to untangle the thing the next time they want to use it. So Yeah, isn't, yeah. It, fu- isn't it funny how that keep it simple theme runs through just about everything in spearfishing? Um, we, 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 we do love to overcomplicate things sometimes, I think. Oh, look, definitely, definitely, yeah. Look, just keep it simple, as I say. I think those... I think those um, ladder flashes are probably the best because they never get tangled. It's just the- yeah, the, the only problem I've uh, like I've got a mate that makes them for me every now and then, and he he's he says the ladder ones, particularly the ones that are made out of the the metal. Um, you know, if you get in the shark infested waters, they'll get their heads stuck in the flasher, and then pretty much goodbye flasher. But um, they do seem to be effective the way they move in the water, though. So yeah, yeah. I don't know. Have you have you have you come across that yourself? Because you've done a lot of travel as well. I have I have seen sharks actually get tangled in them, but it's pretty rare. Normally yeah, they'll okay. come up and have a bit of a bite. I mean, maybe probably in the coral sea would be more you know, somewhere like that would be um, you know more likely for that to happen. But just generally diving around the reefs, you know, up and down the east coast, you know, you see a shark here and there, but it's not like yeah, it's not shark infested waters where there's sharks attacking a flasher all the time. It's yeah, I think that probably the only place that would happen would be out in the coral sea, or maybe up in the you know in the barrier reef in the Swains or somewhere like that. But yeah, okay, cool, cool. Um, no, well, good to get your thoughts on flashes. And you mentioned burley as well. Um, how do you like to 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 use burley or chump, as they call it in America? Just, I mean, look, most of the time, 
I mean, we do burly. I don't burly very often, to be honest, down here, but mainly just for, you know, if you're in a comp or something like that and you want to try and get a red rock cod or something like that. But um, obviously burly's, you know, amazing when, you, when you're out in the coral sea and you're trying to attract job fish or um, try and bring some fish up off the bottom or just create a little bit of interest. One of the things that I've, we have been, somebody told me a long time ago was to use um, newspaper um, as burly and it works fantastic especially if you're just sort of drifting in the blue water you just go and grab a couple of old newspapers and you you, you take the um, you wet them down so that they start to sort of you know break down and then you just as you as you're drifting along you just break off a little piece a couple of little squares and let that float down in the water yeah and that works absolutely fantastic for burly you sort of mix it up a little bit with a few a bit of real burly a bit of bit of fish or whatever and keeps them yeah, interested the, and yeah, it keeps them interested. And the best thing about the um, newspaper is when the sharks come in, they, they, they don't, it doesn't fire them up too much. It's, uh, yeah, okay. Yeah. Yeah, they sort of, they, they'll eat a little bit of the, the newspaper or they'll, and then I'll spit it out. And yeah, whereas if you're just using continually burling with fish frames or, you know, chunks of meat, it just sends the sharks into a feeding frenzy. So, yeah, for sure. Is your major issue spearfishing all about equalising? i got good news for you. We've been pumping Ted Hardy's immersion freediving equalising classes for a while now for free on the No Spirit Podcast because we love it that much. It's effective. Now, his Roadmap to Frenzel class is absolutely excellent. It's a full-on video course that will help you to master the technique of Frenzel because you're probably doing Valsalva. Now, Ted's sweetened it up a little bit more. He's got a 15% discount code. Go to noobspero.com forward slash TED, get full access to the Roadmap to Frenzel Equalizing class, and if you don't learn how to Frenzel within 30 days, he'll give you a full money back refund. Now, everyone wants to get beyond that 15 to 40 foot mark, that 5 to 10 meter mark, and you don't want to be going upright to have to equalize. So you need to learn the Frenzel Equalizing technique, and the best way to do that is spend a little bit of time doing Ted Hardy's course. Come to noobspiro.com forward slash Ted. Get a 15% discount. Enjoy. Guys, head over to vimeo.com. Check out the How to Spearfish video series by Luke Potts. There's nearly four hours of video training there, and they're divided into five different videos so far to help you take on the areas of difficulty that you might have. Now, there's a beginner's guide to spearfishing gear. There's a guide to how to increase your breath hold for spearfishing. There's techniques for spearfishing yellowtail kingfish, which also doubles as a guide to hunting pelagic fish. There's a, a guide techniques for spearfishing snapper, which is a really good, um, helpful guide for approaching canny reef fish, which is a tough one. And finally, a guide to spearfishing around sharks. If you want to buy any of these videos, use the code NoobSpero and save a bit of cash. Check it out. Vimeo on demand, how to spearfish. I wanted to get back a little bit into some of your story. Um, what's one of the more memorable fish you've, you've, you've taken in your time? I know you've, um, you've been to the US, Mexico, New Zealand, the Coral Sea, just about all over Australia. You must have shot some absolutely special fish in your time. I have. I've sh I'm just trying to think um, about some of, the, some of the good fish that I've shot. I've never, I've never shot a marlin or anything like that. I've had a couple of opportunities where I've seen them. Um, I wasn't really that fast to get a marlin just for personal reasons, but I know a lot of blokes that do. Um, and I have tried to I have tried the spear marlin and things like that before. But uh, I think 
couple of the most more memorable fish. I did manage to get a 10 kilo snapper in New Zealand. Okay. Uh, that was that was pretty. I, I wanted to get a plus 10 snapper, and I've only ever really dived in New Zealand a couple of times. And and it was we went to this. We did a charter actually out to the Great Barrier Island. Yep. Yeah, and it was in the middle of winter. It was absolutely freezing cold. And it was supposed to be a three-day <laughs> charter. There was only four blokes on the charter. Anyway, yep. it was the second day and uh, it was right in the afternoon anyway. The captain of the boat, we were only on a small boat. The captain said, well, look, um, I've just heard on the radio that the wind tonight is supposed to pick up to 60 knots. <laughs> he said, so So we've got to basically, you've got about half an hour more diving and then we've got a hightail at home. It's a couple of hour run across the bay to get back home. So... Um, so I remember I hadn't speared a snapper at all in New Zealand and I thought, well, it's probably not going to happen. And it was literally the last spot that we jumped in. There was a, an island probably 50 metres or 100 metres across and I had one mate going around one way and I was going around the other way and I virtually almost swam all the way around. And we were virtually about to meet in the middle and the captain was coming over with a boat to pick us up and that was the end of the diving. And I just came right around one last ledge and I saw this thing and I didn't even know what it was. I thought it was a blue mole or something like that or a blue mokey and it was just sitting there mid-water and anyway, luckily I, I sort of tweaked to what it was and I thought, oh, this is a pretty good fish and um, and shot it uh, literally as the as the boat was coming in to pick me up and yeah, it went just over 10 kilos. So that was one of the more memorable fish that I've ever got. Um, Jeepers. That, yeah. sounds, that's, that sounds like a dream come true. It was, yeah, it made the trip, as I say, especially under those circumstances and I think I think my mate who was coming around, if he was there thirty seconds before me, he probably would have got it too. So um, yeah, it was just the luck of the luck of the draw and the way things panned out. But yeah, another one was the um, I did get a managed to get a big wahoo uh, in the Blue Water Classic about three years ago, two or three years ago. Yeah, uh, and that was twenty three kilos, and we we were drifting off the um, pinnacle up off North Solitary there, and. It was a beautiful day and the water was crystal clear. And anyway, as soon as we jumped in, I had a couple of couple of relatively new guys, a couple of juniors in my boat, and they threw the flasher out. And within about 20 seconds, uh, I think two wahoo came in that were okay. over. Yeah, and these, these blokes were just, they couldn't believe it. These things just looked huge. Anyway, one bloke by the name of Patrick, he went down and the um, thing came straight up to his flasher anyway. He went down and shot it from about five feet away. Oh, and wow. the thing took off, and I can't remember what happened. I think it might have actually broken, um, broken his jink eye from oh, memory. Geez. Yeah. Anyway, got got off, and he was devastated. So we As swam you would around. Be. Yeah, uh, he was only he's only a young kid too, you know, seventeen or sixteen, and nice. would have been a fish of a lifetime. And in a comp too, so oh, wow. yeah. So he wasn't happy. Anyway, we swam around for about another hour, and none of us really even saw anything. I think a couple of guys saw Wahoo off in the distance, and. Uh, there was no current. We had the boat anchored up on top of the pinnacle. We'd sort of pretty much given up, and I said, "Oh, look, you know, let's go. Let's start to pack up and and go." And I was literally swimming back to the boat. The boat was only anchored on the top of the bombing in about ten meters of water. And as I was swimming back, probably halfway in between the boat and myself, uh, about five wahoo came in. Oh wow! And they were just absolute stonkers. You know, they looked huge and. Um, absolute sitters they just yeah so I cruised in and I don't think I even dived probably less than about five meters and and just shot the biggest one and it yeah it took off and um, took off and yeah played it out I don't think I had a bungee or anything like that but I had a quite a long rig line I think 20 or 30 meter rig line and 
yeah, anyway, ended up landing it. So that was that was, ended up being the biggest fish of the comp, 23 kilos. So not a monster, but still a good fish for. Ah, oh, it's a buddy monster. Yeah. I haven't sh- I haven't shot one yet. Right, I just want to go back and pick in a, a couple of details. So you said five five fish came in on you. Were you on the surface at that stage? I was on the surface and I was swimming back to the boat. Yeah, and they came in between. They literally came in between myself and the boat, and I could see the boat. Uh, and they would have been probably, oh, maybe 15 metres away, I suppose, 15 to 20 metres away, and I just, yeah, just swam in and don't even think I dived. I can't even remember. Maybe I did dive, but I think sometimes with Big Wahoo, you can just get lucky and they just, they're not spooked. Yeah. I didn't have a flash or anything like that. They just came in and I just swam towards them and, yeah, it sort of did the old trick where you hide your face with your, hide your goggles with your hand and swim towards them at the same time as if you're not interested, but... Ah. Um, yeah, they start to they start to sort of get a little bit wary, but they're at the same time they're sort of thinking, "What are you doing? What are you doing?" Yeah, and and I think just at the last second, just picked out the biggest one and, and reached out and shot it. So yeah, I was very lucky. So you were swimming directly to the boat. Were the were the wahoo swimming from left to right or right to left? Like uh, they were coming from right to left, and they were heading okay. just straight over the top of the bommy. Okay, which was just. Yeah, as I say, and, and the funny thing was, probably there would have been about thirty divers that would have dived for the last hour in this spot because everybody's looking for wahoo, <laughs> and you'd think everything would have been scared off, which is what normally happens after the boats have been running around. So it was absolutely, you know, none of us had seen anything for about an hour, and I was just swimming back to the boat, and then just luck was on my side, and these these fish came in, so I was very lucky. Now, you were lucky, but you probably also did a couple of things right. Now, one thing I'm guilty of when I get in these situations as I get way too excited my heart goes through the roof the adrenaline's pumping and I'm already standing on the boat getting a, my photo taken holding this fish before I've even come <laughs> near the bloody thing um, yeah. what are what are a couple of the things you use to do to you know apply the right level of self-control in order not to spook these fish what, what are some of the things you do as an experienced Spiro uh, look I think the number one thing is to try to hide your eyes and just you can swim towards fish. You, you can't obviously. I mean, a lot of the time, there's no point going the other way. You've got to still try to get close the gap to be able to take a shot. But ho- holding the gun in close to you, okay. Um, so by virtually by your side, so you don't you don't look like you've got your arm out extended and you're sort of chasing the fish. You sort of only extend the gun at the last second. But definitely the number one thing is just looking like you're disinterested and hiding your eyes with your hand. So I'll even I'll even put my whole arm up in front of my eyes, uh, and just block, you know, and not look at the fish, not make eye contact. I mean, they're sort of looking at you. They're looking at you, thinking, "What's this? You know, what's this thing coming towards me? Is it mm. a predator or is it just friendly?" Or and you're just using that fish's, you know, inquisitive nature to not take off, basically. Um, so you Love just it. use, yeah, you just just blocking blocking your eyes with your hand. And then just at the last second before they take off, you can sort of just outstretch your arm, take your eye, you know, take your hand away and, and try and get a shot in. And you can normally get pretty close to fish by doing that. Mm, okay, cool. All right, good tips. And I'm going to take some of them on board myself because uh, some fish just bloody excite me beyond beyond all belief. I, you know, like I've been spearing for eight or nine years now and I still 
you know, have, have trouble managing myself. Um, I mean, I only get out probably two, three times a month at the moment and, um, you know, that's part of the reason for it. But, I mean, I've still got, you know, all the, all the same buzz I had when I started, so I'm guilty yeah, of, um, exactly. yeah. of doing that. I, th I think even, you know, really experienced guys are still doing it, so it's interesting to get some ideas from me, so that was cool. Um, moving on, what's one of the toughest situations you've had out in the ocean and, um, I mean, what happened and, and what did you learn from it? Uh, toughest situations, um, could quite possibly, I did actually get lost at sea once and it was on a coral sea trip. I think it was probably, uh, maybe 10 or 15 years ago. Okay. That was a pretty, oh, I wouldn't say it was a tough situation, but it just show, it goes to show you, you know, what can go wrong. And I was diving with a couple of friends. I think there was four of us in the boat. And we were diving in a lot of current and we were diving on the back of this reef and it was probably only maybe 3.30 or 4 o'clock in the afternoon. So the, most of these boats that you go on, these coral sea trips, they have a curfew of around about 5 p.m. And it gives that, you've got to be basically out of, you know, back of the mothership by then to give you that, you know, hour of daylight left to, to be able to search for someone if they do get lost. Yeah. But anyway, I think it was, yeah, it was late afternoon. So the sun was sort of going down. It might have been 4 o'clock or whatever and, Anyway, one of the guys um, in the boat, uh, who I'll, I'll talk to you a bit more about later on, um, a bloke <laughs> by the name of Spiro, he's a, quite a famous um, character on the Central Coast here, um, and his brother, they're both Greek, Greeks, and um, and another guy. Anyway, we were drifting together, and we had, had a boaty and everything like that, and uh, we drifted over a, a patch of reef, and I remember Spiro went down, and he actually shot a coral trout, and we are on the back of the reef, and we only would have been in, I don't know. 10 or 12 metres of water and he went down and he speared a big coral trout and I remember watching him, the coral trout went into a cave and holed up and I thought, oh, you know, this is going to take him a while to get that out and so anyway, he was, uh, he had his gun stuck, another guy was there with him, he grabbed onto the rig line as well, meanwhile, I was basically drifting away in the current uh, and, yep. and I would have only been maybe 20 or 30 metres away from them, but I was moving quite fast. The current was running quite hard. So anyway, they called the boat over and I could see what was going to happen here. So the first thing that I did was I put my gun up and, and started to yell out and said, you know, come and pick me up, you know, so I can help, um, so I can help, you know, get the fish out or whatever. Anyway, the boatie didn't hear me. So I started to drift away and I thought, oh, anyway, the boatie started to um, circle around where the guys were with the fish stuck. Mm. So... So anyway, they, they were all holding onto their rig line and they weren't moving. But meanwhile, I was going, I was getting, I was drifting out the sea quite fast mm. and, you know, 100 metres, 200 metres and I could see them anyway. They're mucking around and I could see they had the, um, uh, the rig line tied off to the bow of the boat and they're trying to pull the fish out and do all this crazy stuff. And anyway, yeah. time was sort of getting eaten away and they probably mucked around trying to get this fish out of the cave for, I don't know, probably 10 or 15 minutes. Yeah, and by this time I was gone. I was just I couldn't swim against the current. Yeah, I was drifting away, and I would have been maybe by the time they sort of realised what was going on, I might have been a k away. I reckon. Yeah, I was just sitting on my float. I had a float, luckily a big float. Anyway, so when they finally got the fish out and they realised that I was nowhere to be seen, you could see they packed up, they got everything, they were all back in the boat, and I could still see the boat. Um, quite clearly. Anyway, instead of um, think that you could see that they've all sort of gone, oh, where's Al? 
and instead of going um, with the out to sea with the current, they started yeah. to go inshore. They thought I'd gone oh. inshore around the, the bombing around the island. So yeah. they went the other way. So oh, no. anyway, they started to go inshore and they mucked around out there. And, and meanwhile, as I say, I'm just drifting going, yeah. So oh, come on, boys, you know, <laughs> you're, going the wrong, you're going the wrong way here. You weren't saying that. You were swearing. Yeah. Come on. <laughs> and the other thing is this, with the sun was setting, yeah. uh, it was a little bit choppy. It's, and if you're looking into the sun, it's almost impossible to see more than about 50 metres, and I was probably a K and a half away by now. Jeepers. Yeah. So anyway, still drifting. Um, and I remember I was drifting out in the water. It was crystal clear, 50 metre visibility. I'm seeing all these dog tooth tunas swimming underneath me. I'm going, oh, <laughs> obviously couldn't shoot anything. <laughs> Would have made matters even worse. But yeah. So I'm drifting along. Anyway, finally I could see that they've realised, you know, I'm not there and and they start to, to do circles around. And luckily on that boat, <laughs> they made everybody wear a safety sausage. Ah, nice. Yeah. So I don't know if you've ever seen one. They're a $30 yep. item. Those scuba divers had them. You'd attach them to your, to, your, um, to your weight belt. When, if you ever get you know, lost at sea or you need someone's attention or whatever, something happens, you can blow this thing up and it reaches up into the air about three metres. Shit. So anyway, the boys in the boat, they did the right thing. They realised I was gone. They radioed the mothership and they said, look, we've lost a diver. Can't find him. Um, can we bring some other boats over here to help look? So luckily the other boats had radios. They came over, started looking. Meanwhile, sitting on my float, I had the safety sausage up in the air. And as I said, I was not really in any danger. The only danger was that I didn't get found before nightfall, really. And anyway, you could see the boys going back and forth, back and forth. Anyway, after what felt like another 10 or 15 minutes, <laughs> um, I saw them coming towards me and they had actually spotted just on the edge of visibility. They'd spotted the orange um, the orange sausage, so it basically saved my life, that thing. Shit. Yeah, and then they came straight out and, and, and found me. So I don't know how far I drifted. Um, okay. This sounds like, to me, this sounds like a scenario that could quite potentially happen nearly every trip out there because you've got, you got big current, you've got you know four or five guys in a dory together, three or four of them head out from the mothership. Um, potentially this could happen a lot. Um, what are some of the things you guys learnt from it and what, what, what have you changed since as a, as a crew? Uh, look, I, I think it was, just, it was just one of those things that, that happened. I mean, look, it comes down to having a good boaty um, and, and having – a boaty that basically knows all the time what's going on and where everybody is, and that's the most important thing. Yeah. And 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 if and, and as a boaty as well, you've got to um, talk to your divers. And, and if they if they're too far apart, you know, like I'm, I know when I'm boating for guys, if you've got one bloke swimming up at the current and the other guys are drifting with the current, and they're starting to become too far apart, I'll actually go and say to them, "Look, you're too far apart. I'm going to pick you up and drop you with the other guys." Or or swim over to them so that everybody stays together because it's just such a scenario where, um, you know, things can go wrong in, in so quickly, you know, losing a diver. and Yeah, I've heard of it happening a couple of times, but as I say, that's the only incident I've ever been involved with really of being lost, but it was just, yep. just one of those things. You make some good points there. I think one of the things a boaty's got to be a bit of a leader at times. Like you've got to make some decisions. You know, like like you were just saying, like when your divers are too far apart, you've got to be prepared to be called an arsehole and pick two of them up and take them over to the other two. You know, or or if you've got six divers, it's even worse. I think. And, exactly. Um, you know, sometimes it's just something not so severe, but 
it's also an issue, you know, like the guys might be drifting in, into a green zone unintentionally or whatever. So you've just got to be prepared to, to, to call it and just say, get in the boat, we're moving. Or, or um, yeah, and, and I think the other thing you brought up was, you know, the guy on the boat needs to be actively scanning and paying attention to whatever the hell's going on. I mean, we're all guilty of, you know, bloody mucking around with our GoPro batteries or something or, or going to the toilet or whatever, but you should still have an idea about what's going on around you and, and managing your diver's situation because if you are the boater, you've also got to sometimes get in between your divers and a boat coming towards them. Um, yeah, so definitely. It's a, it's a lot of responsibility and... Um, so in that in that scenario though, where you've got four divers and maybe you know they get holed up in current, would you pick up the other divers before dealing with the guys with the fish stuck in current? Yeah, definitely. You've got to pick up the diver that's going to drift away for sure. I mean, if the other guys the other guys are stuck there dealing with their fish, I mean, if they're holding onto their float, if it's holed up or whatever, holding onto their rig line, well, you know that that's no dramas. They can sort that out. But yeah, the priority is to pick up the divers. Um, first because, you know, as I say, within five minutes and the current's running at, you know, five knots, they're going to be gone really, really quick. you just got to get those divers back in the boat and, and then and then sort about sort out the fish, you know. I mean, if the, as I say, even on that day, if they picked me up um, and dropped me back up, I could have helped get that fish off and, you know, five or ten minutes later we would have been spearing again. So instead of having all these dramas. Yeah. Oh, jeepers, I hate um, having a fish hole up when you're in current and you've got multiple divers in the water. It's always a shit show, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. It can be a nightmare. Look, it doesn't happen that often, but yeah. yeah. I mean, but look, we don't really get a lot of currents down here where yeah. we dive. It's very rare, and if, and if we do get current, it's usually you can swim against it. It's only in summertime, but um, it's more so when we do the trips up north that, that you get that little bit of that current and you do a couple – and normally – if there is a lot of current, uh, like if it's really ripping current and the, and the drifts are quite fast, I'll, I'll only ever put two divers in. So it's normally if you've got four blokes in the boat, it'll be sort of, you know, two blokes go for the drift and then two blokes in the boat and then and then on the next drift, you just swap it over. So, yeah, rather than trying to chuck six blokes in or whatever, yep. you know, and just people going everywhere and you're losing people and, yeah. Makes sense, and and it's another reason why guys stick to the same crew over and over because you you develop a really good understanding, and you're not having to explain things, um, you know. But um, it it can be a bit lazy too because then you guys don't get to learn, you know. So, um, yeah. which which brings us neatly on to sort of the next part of the show, veterans' fault, where you know we love to dig into sort of our guests' area of expertise, and you know, Alex mentioned that you you make an incredible effort with the juniors there at the the Central Coast uh, Sea Lions, and um, you make an effort to chaperone the new guys, show them around how to dive safely, all the rest of it. So I wanted to dig into some tips and tricks about how to take guys diving because, um, you know, experienced guys, it's a lot of work to take out new guys, and sometimes you're giving up your dive day, you know, in order to do so. So um, what's your what's your kind of yeah, views look, on it? We've got it. We've, I mean, look, you know, we talked a little bit about the club, but we've got a fantastic um, – fantastic club up here with the sea lions um you know it's a very sociable club we encourage anybody of any age to enter um we're not super focused on on fish fishing always a bit of a bonus if you bring a fish in but it's just more about camaraderie between people and you know going out and having a good time um you know we're not super focused on going out and, and trying to catch 10 or 20 fish or Sometimes guys dive the comp and they don't even catch a fish at all. But we still try, obviously. That's the name of the game. But I think 
we do, because we are such a sociable club, we've had a lot of juniors sign up over the years and a lot of, yep. a lot of new, new guys. Um, and most of these guys that turn up, a lot of them haven't never been in a boat before. So we've got quite a few guys in the, in the club with boats now, which is really, really good. And yep. everybody's just happy to take out, take out new guys, you know, if they want to come out. Oh, wow. So I think the first thing is um, when you get somebody in the boat, well, the first thing that I do is I say to them, <laughs> and I've had a lot of juniors in my boat and other people, and other older people as well, like older guys as well. I say, do you get seasick? And a lot of the time they go, well, look, I don't know. So, well, look, you better take a couple of seasick talents because we're going out for five hours, and, and if you get <laughs> if you get sick, well, unfortunately, we're not coming back in. But yeah. um, so normally, yeah, I've taken blokes out, and it's and it's just painful to watch them. They get seasick and. <laughs> Yeah, and a couple of times I caved in and said, "Okay, we're going back. We're going to drop you off." And <laughs> but um, yeah, definitely. Look, the first thing is just just showing guys around the boat uh, a couple of their responsibilities of things that they've got to do. Yeah. Um, in terms of just keeping their their gear neat and tidy and, and being organised, and you know, show them. I mean, when you take a couple of guys out and they're first up, first time, you, you know, you don't expect them to drive the boat or anything like that. But just just showing them where the radio is and where the EPIRB is and you know, a couple of basic safety things. Yeah. And then usually try to go to a spot that's reasonably easy just for a warm-up dive. Yeah. So, you know, you don't want to go out in the 30 metres of water and drop the pick and go, okay, boys, in you get. <laughs> so normally yeah. just do a warm-up dive in some shallow water, um, just, you know, four or five metres up to eight metres, ten metres, start off and just somewhere that's really, really calm and let everybody have a little swim around and just sort of warm up a little bit. Yep. Before we sort of maybe venture out into deeper water. I love to dive deeper water. I love that sort of 10 to 15, you know, 20 metre ground, especially on the coast because it just, just seems like there's obviously a lot more fish out there. So after we've done a few warm-up dives, we'll sort of, if the visibility is okay, we'll go out and pick a spot, maybe an anchor in 10 or 15 metres of water or if there's no current. And then, yeah, it's a little bit more of a challenge for the guys, but most of them are, are pretty good and you know, if it's summertime, they can still see Bonito and Kingfish and things like that to swim around with. Yeah, and just take the time to show the guys, you know, what to, what to shoot and uh, what they can and can't shoot. Most of most of the guys, the kids nowadays, they're pretty good. They've done a little bit of diving, even if it's not from a boat, but they sort of, yeah, they, they're getting better and they've watched the videos and so they know what to do. And, yeah, it's just a matter of keeping an eye on people and making sure no one swims too far away from the boat. And, yeah, okay, so- normally... Normally, give people a little bit of a, a time frame and say, "Look, you know, we're going to spend a roughly and half an hour in this spot, so don't swim too far." Okay, cool. And you guys are, um, you know, going off the pick a lot of the time because you're not contending with current, so that that makes it easy as well. You know, if the guys are sort of within a hundred meters of the boat. Um, in saying that, uh, what are some of the common issues you or, or the, you know these these guys encounter? Um, I I, I yeah, I've got a few opinions of my own, but I'd definitely be happy to hear what, what sort of some of the new guys struggle with down there. Uh, common issues that we encounter. Um, uh, what, you mean things like dangers like blue bottles or? Oh, no, just the, 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 the struggles the divers have and how you sort of coach them through it. For example, um, you know, a lot of guys have problems with equalising. Yeah, look, definitely, definitely, yeah. Yeah, look, a lot of the kids have do have a bit of trouble with equalising, but they don't. The thing is, on the Central Coast, we're quite lucky. You don't need to dive deep to get fish. I think, you know, if you're diving up in the Barrier Reef and thing, things like that, you sort of have to dive. You have to be a 20, 
15 to 20 meter diver to sort of be able to get fish. Whereas on the coast, a lot of our fish are in shallow water. Um, some of the some of my best mates, like Andrew Pierce, he's probably never dived more than 10 meters in his life, and he's probably shot more more good fish than anyone in the club. So <laughs> wow. he, he just yeah, he, he just swims around in, in the shallows, and he always always shooting big Jew and. Um, I think his rig line might only be about ten meters, so that's that's evidence that he doesn't dive deep. But yeah, I think I think yeah, you don't really need to to dive deep to get good fish on the coast, which is a huge benefit. But a lot of guys, um, you know, they do want to um, start to go a little bit deeper, and normally, um, yeah, like things like equalisation is a big factor, and just learning how what you know what species to hunt and things like that, and how to hunt so it's good to be able to just take the time and, and really show the guys and, and teach them a little bit a lot of it's i guess it's a bit of monkey see monkey do you know um which is a really good effective way you know to teach people you know they just watch what you do and then they just mimic it um one, one of the things i notice particularly when you're diving in shallower water you know like shallower than 30 feet or you know 10 meters or, or even half that um noise is kind of exaggerated you know like um you don't have that cushion of of distance between you and the fish and you guys make tend to make a lot of noise when they're moving around they don't know it um but is that something you coach guys through do you give them any tips or advice yeah look definitely definitely yeah just just teaching people um teaching the guys to be you know just to be relaxed and to not try to chase fish i think is a big thing not try to to be too much of a predator just to be part of the part of the um, ocean and part of the environment and works especially well with things like uh, ludric and uh, drummer and they're the type of species where if you chase them you're never going to get one it's impossible and if you dive down to the bottom in five meters of water on the boulders and and lay on the bottom even if it's for 30 seconds the fish come back to you and it's, it's the same with pretty much every species if you go down to the bottom and lay on the bottom even if it's for even if it's for 10 seconds the fish will always come back. You try to hide your body and make make it look like you're just sort of disinterested and um, that you're not sort of hunting. And then, yeah, so I sort of try to teach guys that uh, rather than just sort of bombing down on a school of fish and trying to take a shot from the above and you see the, the school scattering and, you know, the fish don't come back. So, yep. yeah. Okay, cool. All right, so we talked a bit about equalising and maybe, um, you know, um, getting some smooth actions. What about um, duck dive? Is that is that um, have you got a process for getting guys to duck dive, or do you just sort of model the way to do it and just get them to copy you? Look, I think I think in general, spiros are the worst duck divers because even myself, it's a lot different than free diving. Yep. I think with free diving, because you you know usually going straight down a line, you have to be you know proficient in being able to do a duck dive. Whereas I think with spearing a lot of the time you might only be diving in five meters of water you don't need to do the perfect duck dive it might you might want to dive down at a 45 degree angle so um i don't think with spearing especially with new guys you really need to focus too much on duck diving i think if they're diving start to free dive and they're diving deeper definitely but even even myself a lot of the time you know if i'm just in four or five meters of water and i'm got a fair bit of weight on you you hardly have to duck dive at all you just sort of flip over and yeah you might cruise down at at a 45 and just sit on the bottom and cruise along the bottom and try and get a fish but you know i always encourage people especially the guys in our club to go and do a course and learn how to do it better yeah 
like a, just even like a basic full, you know, level one free diving course. Most mm. of the people in our club have done it now, which is which is fantastic. It just saves you so much time in the long in the long run, you know, like just developing some good habits with taking a full breath, not hyperventilating, um, you know, getting some idea about streamlining and good finning technique. Uh, you know, the, uh, the good freediving instructor can just help you through so yeah. many of those those early obstacles and um, just some dedicated time in a controlled environment. I, 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 I can't recommend it highly enough to, to guys. So, Oh, look, yeah. you know, and as I say, we're, we're blessed here on the coast. We've got some of the most amazing freediving instructors. Um, we've got, you know, Australian champion Adam Stern. He, he's a good, very good friend of mine and he's came to our club a few times and, and, and done little seminars and, uh, he's always running free diving courses all the time and putting guys through. And and another guy um, who I can't you know say enough good things about is um, a good friend of mine, Darren. He's he's from the uh, free diving club. He does a little bit of spearing, but his mainly background is is free diving. And he's also a, a coach and an instructor. And he yeah he just re- he's a school teacher, so he really takes the time to uh educate the guys and 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 break each individual part down and and show them exactly what to do so he's put a lot of a lot of young guys and even older guys uh through their level one or two you know free diving and it's just made their spearfishing so much safer and yeah they've just excelled from there which is which is just great yeah phenomenal hey um last sort of question from me for the veterans vault and just you know helping guys to break into spearfishing um how do you how do you communicate to guys to and get them to adopt some good buddy practices from the get go? Is that something that's a concern of you when you're teaching these guys? Yeah, look at look it is. Um, I think every Spiro is the same. We don't real like we, we always say that we want to look out for our buddies and we, we do as best as we can and uh, but a lot of the time, especially in you know, comp situations, you drop the you know you get dropped off and everybody goes in their own different direction. So it's definitely something that people need to sort of think about more. It's kind of hard to really, I mean, we do buddy up, but it's kind of hard a lot of the time to dive in pairs, especially on the coast, because a lot of the time the water's quite dirty and, yeah. you know, you might be diving in three or four meter visibility. And I'm, I'll, I'll dive with a good friend of mine, Guy. We dive quite a lot together and you'll see him go down and, you basically once he's dived more than four or five meters, you've lost sight of him. So, and you, you you don't know where he's going to come up because he'll go down to the bottom and swim along the bottom for fifteen or twenty meters. Yeah. So it's more just a matter of looking out for people. And you know, I've always got in the back of my mind. I always watch and just make sure that they do come up, even if it is fifteen or twenty meters away. And I suppose the other thing is, um, yeah, just it's as I say, sometimes it can be very hard to buddy up. Definitely yep. in, in you know in clear water situations, it's a lot easier because you can see somebody dive down and you can watch them for their whole dive and see them come back up. But in a lot of the, the mud muddy waters that we dive, you just can't do that. But I yeah. think always try and tell people, especially guys in our club, anyone that I'm sort of teaching, you really only only want to dive fifty percent of your ability. Like you, if you can hold your breath for two minutes, well, you know a minute dive would be an absolute maximum. So it's always having that. You know, you're never pushing yourself at all when you're when you're diving or when you're spearing, so that that situation never comes up where you you know you're coming up and you're out of breath and you. Yeah, I know even myself. Most of my dives, I could do a you know I've done a four minute dive before under the under the water, but most of my dives will be maximum between a minute and a minute twenty, maybe a minute thirty. 
Yep. So, yep. yeah, it's just a, just a matter of not pushing yourself at all to, to put yourself in that situation where there's any, any possibility of you having a blackout, really. Yeah, no, that's a good point. Um, we've got a guy we talk to quite often. His name is Ted Hardy from Immersion Freediving in the US, and he has put together a free website called uh, freedivingsafety.com, and guys can go on and do like a two- or three-hour video training module about just how to spearfish um, safely. There's a whole lot of things in there about, you know, the benefits to having a good buddy. One of the ones I've been experiencing lately, and I really appreciated this on Sunday, I followed pretty good buddy practice and um, it forced me to make sure I had a really good surface interval. Because if you're diving with a guy like yourself who's, who's, who's you know, doing 90 second dives, um, that's at least, you know, probably two minutes you're spending on the surface. And that's that's making sure that, you, you, you know, you're spending enough time you know, with, with your breathe up, relaxing and stuff. I found that was a really cool one and as, and as a benefit I hadn't really thought of until um, just this weekend, so yeah. Yeah, oh, look, definitely, you know, just, yeah, taking the time to breathe up on the surface and especially and especially if you're diving with a buddy, you, you know, you've got that, that time when they're diving to, to allow for your recovery as well. So, yeah. Just, yeah, I mean, it's a good practice to get into. I mean, we're, we're as I say, we don't usually dive in pairs, but... I've dived over overseas quite a lot, especially in the Mediterranean and that, and it's all buddy diving. And actually the first, I remember the first um, uh, time I went over and dived uh, in Greece and I'd never really knew, I was only quite a relatively new diver and I dived with these Greek guys. And anyway, one of the guys dived down and he was down on the bottom in 20 metres or 25 metres and a couple of fish were there. And anyway, when he was coming back up, he would have been about halfway to the surface and I, I I dived um, before he hit the surface. When I came back up, he was actually quite angry about it, and he said, "He said, I remember he spoke in you know in Greek or whatever, but he basically said, you do not break the protocol.'" <laughs> I said, "What do you mean?" He goes, "You will you go? He goes, you got to wait till I finish my dive and watch and make sure that I'm safe before yeah. you come up before you dive." And I said, "Oh, okay." And I learned that lesson. I'm, I never ever, you know, I still to this day remember that. Yeah, you know, do not break the protocol. Yeah, so. yeah. Well, it's 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 how a lot of us learn, you know. Like we we um, you know, we do something wrong and get get it pointed out to us. And I guess those guys they are always pushing the limits, you know. Like we saw the the Greek world champs and these guys doing sixty meter dives and stuff. And a lot of that med diving is just you know it's all deep stuff. And those guys are just crazy free divers. But you know, like the vigilance is just absolutely essential because um. They're pushing it so much, so yeah. Exactly, yeah. Hey, let's move on to something lighter. Unless you had some final tips there for um, teaching new guys, I think. I think just if you, if you do if you are in a situation where you do have the knowledge and ability to to teach young guys and, and pass on a bit of a bit of information or just to get them out in the water, it's it's just yeah, you, you've got to you've got to do it. I mean, it's good to have the same crew all the time, but we. Especially in our club, we just basically put the put the word out. You know, if there's, if there's a dive going, and we say, right, whoever wants to jump on, if they're new, if they're first day diving, whatever, um, and just give them that opportunity rather than rather than um, you know just diving with the same two or three people all the time and, and not yeah. giving those other guys an opportunity to come out with you and learn. Yeah. So yeah, well, um, you got to be a bit of it's got to be a bit of a balance. I mean, sometimes I'm been in a boat and i've got five new guys in the boat and you're sort of thinking, oh. <laughs> it's too many yeah <laughs> too yeah. many yeah 
Yeah. I, um, I, I, you know, like I put a guy onto his first cod two weeks ago and um, he's a guy I've been diving with a fair bit lately and um, I've been able to show him a couple of things and, you know, like it's just a real – it's almost like shooting your first of a species, you know, when you help another guy shoot their first. It's, it's, uh, it's really rewarding in its own way and uh, I've been really enjoying it actually. So I was, I was keen to, yeah, to ask you a couple of questions about it today. So cool to get some ideas off you. Hey Noobers, it's uh, Jeremy here from Spearing Magazine with an uh, with an update for you guys. Shrek and Turbo have been doing such a great job with uh, telling guys about Spearing Magazine that we've actually sold out of most of our back issues and catalogs. But uh, I just wanted to let you guys know that uh, we have an international subscription available just for you guys. Yeah, from Spearing Magazine. I'm Jeremy Gamble. Thank you, guys. Go to SpearingMagazine.com. Check out the uh, international subscription. Aw, yeah. Today's episode is brought to you by Patreon. It's a membership platform that makes it easy for artists and creators like the Noob Spiro to get paid. Basically, you support us per episode at any level that you choose. Head over to patreon.com forward slash Today's episode powered by patron listeners just like you. All right. Hey, um, funniest thing. What's one of the funniest moments you've had out spearfishing? Oh, look, I've got um, so many funny stories from spearfishing, but I, look, I, I can't go without putting in a story about um, one, one from a trip to Fiji with... with um, a couple of mates of mine, yeah. No, nah, it wasn't, wasn't Spiro actually. Oh, I've, okay, got, right. I've got heaps of funny stories about Spiro, but I've got a, I've got a one that came to mind was, and it's actually we, we've got a funny thing going with Simon Tripp. I, I, you've, you've spoken to Trippy on a few occasions, and yep. um, there's a bloke that's by the name of Steve Breer, and he's he's probably the most you know notorious poacher in Australia, but he's actually <laughs> um, he's actually a nice guy, and um, he sort of dropped off the radar quite a bit now but I sort of I sort of was mates with him um, probably about 10 or 15 years ago and anyway he said I'll oh, come to Fiji and, and Steve's been to Fiji probably I don't know 60 times or maybe 100 I don't know he's there pretty much every second weekend <laughs> and um, anyway I did a trip with a few mates and to, to Fiji and Steve was organizing the trip and um, anyway we went to a place called Kandavu and I'm sure the free dive Fiji guys know about it and we did a trip over there. We, we got a light plane. They take you in a little light plane and we flew over there. And Anyway, Steve, is, he, he thinks he's a bit of a cook, a bit of a chef, and he said, oh, he goes, have you ever eaten uh, octopus? And I said, oh, I said, no, they taste like a rubber boot. And he's going, no, no, no. He goes, trust me. He goes, I'm going to get an octopus and I'm going to show you it'll be taste like m- melting butter in your mouth. And I went, okay. <laughs> I said, I'll believe that when I see it. Yeah. So anyway, um. I think it was probably on the last day of diving, or you know, second last day, and he saw this big octopus, and it wasn't just a normal, you know, small one. It was a reasonable size one. It had a, probably a, a wingspan of a meter. It was a decent size one. Anyway, he speared the thing, and <clears throat> it wrapped around his gun, and it was an absolute hilarious uh, trying to trying to see him sort of land this thing, and it wrapped around his gun, and it's every time he sort of pulled a, a tentacle off him off himself, and another one would latch on, and yeah, it was just a comical thing watching him trying to land this octopus and you know, a big cloud of ink and 
coming out and all this sort of stuff. Anyway, he finally subdued this thing and um, and got it in the boat. And and anyway, I think the, the day's diving was over. But basically, I think the next day we had to fly out. And he said, oh, "I'm going to take this back to the mainland, back to the back to Fiji, and cook it up for you." And I said, "Oh yeah, no worries. Okay, well, not a problem." So anyway, he ended up he had a he had this um, octopus in a shopping bag, one of those disposable sort of shopping bags that you get from you know Woolies or Coles or whatever and this thing was just like a big blob of, of goop by then and still yeah like a big ball of slime you know the thing was absolutely massive anyway um he said I'm going to take it back to the mainland and cook it up for you in a curry and I'll show you how tender this thing's going to be so anyway the next day we're flying out on this small plane he had the thing as he took the thing as carry-on luggage this octopus in the in the bag in the shopping bag and the plane was only half full, so he sat it on the seat next to him. And in Fiji, obviously, they, you know, they didn't really question too much about what was going on. But he's got this octopus in a in a bag in the seat, and it was still leaking all this black ink out, and there was ink all over the seat, and it was just dripping out. And the plane absolutely stunk of this octopus, and uh, and all you could see was just this black slime going down the aisle of this little plane. You know, we're in and oh. Oh, it was hilarious. Anyway, um, yeah, so we're just going, what are you doing? So finally, anyway, he got this, got back to the mainland and we, yeah, that night he said, oh, I'm going to cook this thing up for you and it's going to taste delicious and he made up some curry and he chopped it up and put it in there and anyway, f- anyway, finally had it, you know, got to try this thing and he, after he cooked it and boiled it for you know, half an hour and it, it tasted absolutely terrible and it still tasted like eating a piece of um, car tire, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, jeepers, did he earn a nickname for that, apart from being uh, a gratuitous poacher? He, well, he's already got the nickname from that, but he's, as I say, it was just another another story of, along with many hundreds of others that sort of one day Simon Tripps, I think, is going to jot down and, and put in the, the book of bear, I think he's going to call it, the bear files or something like that. So <laughs> The bear files. <laughs> the bear files, I think, yeah, the bear yeah. files because he's just done it. so many so many crazy things. But in saying that, he's actually a, a quite a nice guy, Steve, and he, he has taken a lot of juniors out and told them a lot of things. And Yeah, so I can't say too many bad things about him. All right, hey, a couple of quick questions to go. Um, Albie, let's hook into your dive bag. So sort of head to toe, what's your equipment like, um, particularly at the moment in the uh, – sort of the onset of winter, serious winter? Uh, I've got, I'm one of those people that's got an absolute heap of wetsuits. Um, I've been given wetsuits, I've won wetsuits, I've bought wetsuits. So at the moment I'm using a hex five millimeter camo suit that I was given, uh, we actually won it in the Blue Water Classic. Gee, how's Um, that go? Do you like it? it's It's been actually quite a good suit. It's very warm. Yeah. It's been a fantastic suit. Probably a little bit too warm unless the water's sort of below twenty degrees. Jeepers, that's a but, that's a that's a big wrap for it, I guess. If you are, in, you know, seriously cold water, maybe that's a, one of the reasons why you want to get one. Yeah, look, I mean, any five millimeter suit's going to do the same sort of a job, really, as long as you know, open soil five mil suit. Um, I've got a couple of seven mil suits as well. I've got a couple of XX one seven mils that have been given by Ray Powell. Okay. Um, I've also got a nine millimeter Boucher commercial ab suit, which I, I wore when I was in California chasing okay. the abalones. In I think the water was about nine degrees or eight degrees. So um, yeah, and I've got a lot of so sort of I generally just mix and match. If the water's a little bit 
warm, say around 20 degrees and I don't want to get cold, I might wear a 5 mil top and 3 mil pants. And then if the water's um, a little bit warmer than, you know, 20 degrees or maybe 22 or 23, then I'll just wear um, basically an Adreno suit. I've got one of those 3 millimeter open cell Adreno suits and they're tough as nails. I think I think... I bought the thing on special. It was about 150 bucks, and yeah, you can't <laughs> yeah, tear it. It's, yeah, yeah, oh yeah, well, absolute absolute bargain. You know, can't give I enough got, of a, a wrap. But I got two guys. I've been teaching out in them. They're actually brothers too, so they look ridiculous when they're out together in exactly the same suit. But I actually kind of think it's funny. So yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, in terms of guns, the first gun that I ever bought was a Kesby, Peter Kesby. Yep. Timber gun. I had a friend that had one and he said, oh, look, you know, it's not a bad gun. And I rang Peter up and I said, look, I'm just getting into diving. I'm progressing from a hand spear. What should I get? And, and he sold me a, um, I think it was about a 1.1 maybe timber gun Yep. With a, with a rear handle. I've still got that gun today. It still looks exactly the same as it did. It's had a few more coats of lacquer on it. And but yeah, it still worked, worked uh, flawlessly for the whole time I've had it. But I've never, I don't think I've ever bought a gun apart wow. from that. Wow. Every gun I've ever got, I've made myself. And, and um, did you ever switch to pipe guns? Have you? Are you? What are you? What's your go-to now? Are so you I still, still using used, that Kes gun? No, I still look. I use timber guns, and yep. as I say, every gun that I've got, I've made myself. I've never ever bought another gun. Oh wow! Um, and I just I've learnt from a good friend of mine, like getting back to old Spiro. He makes all of his own guns. Um, a very very good gun maker, laminates the stocks up and all that sort of stuff. So I spent many hundreds of hours in his garage, you know, <laughs> planing timber and gluing stocks together. And yep. um, and some of the best guns I've ever had have been made um, with him sort of mentoring me along the way and, cool. and showing me what to do. And I've still got a lot of those guns to this day. And one of the guns I use all the time, it's just a rear-handled, probably about a 1.4 with triple rubbers. Right, eh? And I shoot everything from brim to, to wahoo with that. So, jeepers, that's all right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah cool. So, what about what about fins and knives? Any anything else of, of note in your dive bag? Fins. Uh, I think there's a lot of good fins on the market. Mm. I'm obviously bi- I'm biased towards using dive R's because I'm very good friends with Ray. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, he's probably given me about five or six pairs of dive R's over my mm-hmm. my career, so I'm a little bit biased towards Ray. Uh, yep. I think he makes amazing amazing fins. They're beautiful designs, well made, Aussie made. So um, yeah, my, yeah. One, yeah my, fir- think- my, my first serious set of composites was a second-hand pair of dive R's, and they were tough as nails. Um, I've since changed to Penetrator, but you know they've they've you know they've got a good reputation and for good reason. And uh, Ray's been well known around Australian spearfishing for a long time. So yeah, look, I think it's um, you know it's just per- personal preference. I've used Penetrators in the pool, and I've used them in the ocean. They're fantastic. Um, I think any any fins as long as they've got a good warranty and you know i think the thing with ray is that um he, he does have a very good backup um you know warranty i know a lot of blokes have you know run fins over in their car and claim that they've you know the things crack when they've been using it and he's always he's no questions asked he's replaced the whole set so um so yeah look i i, I really you know really like dive r's i've done some really f- uh, fantastic dives in them I've did, look, the set that I've got now, which is a set of carbon dive R's, you can basically swim around and I think the perfect fin is you swim around all day and you don't even know they're on your feet. 
Yeah, right. So you don't, your yeah. feet don't get tired. The foot pockets are very comfortable. And and that's the set that I've got now, you know, a set of carbon dive bars and you can swim around all day and you just never get sore. And it's like, you're, it's like you're moving, but you haven't got anything actually, you know, propelling you. It's just, just amazing. So, yeah, I love, I love dive bars. What, what, um, I mean, obviously the blades are fantastic quality. What foot pocket are you using? Because you said, you know, they, it, it doesn't even feel like you're wearing them sometimes. I, I think a lot of that is in the foot pocket as well. Do you know what you're, what, what are you running? Yeah, I've got, look, I've got, you know, so many pairs of dive bars, but I think originally they, uh, Ray used to put, uh, Mare's foot pockets. Mare's, yep, and yep. They're, yeah, and they're, they're a super comfortable foot pocket. They're just incredible. Okay. Um, cool. I think he, in some of his later fins, he's actually developed his own foot pocket. Okay, cool. So, yeah, so I've, again, they're probably a little bit of a copy off the mares. Um, they're very, very soft, very comfortable, no blisters, as long as you've got a good pair of booties. Cool. Yeah, they're good. They're very comfortable. So, yeah, just get it, just getting one that fits. And I tend to wear, at the moment, I've sort of got larger foot pockets and I just wear thicker booties. Yeah. So I wear five mil or three mil booties and it's sort of at a minimum. And, yeah, I just never have a problem. I never get any blisters or... Yeah, it's great. Cool. Hey, anything else of note in your dive bag? Otherwise, we're going to move on to the last three questions. Uh, what else is in my dive bag? Nothing really out of the ordinary. I just tend to use the, you know, I've had the, the micro mask, um, the Boche micro mask, whatever they are. They're, they're fantastic. And I've had the, I've been through quite a few masks, but I think the Adreno masks, which is sort of the copy, very cheap, fantastic yep. mask, indestructible. So yeah, just been using that. Same with the, just the Adreno snorkel. Most of their stuff, their their stock standard, you know, brand is just amazing. Yep. That's you know relatively reasonably priced. You mm. know, you don't want to go and spend eighty dollars on a snorkel when you can get one from Adreno for nineteen bucks. So fantastic. <laughs> um, yeah. Some stuff you need to spend money on, and some stuff you don't. And uh, it's it, you know, as you the longer you've been sparing, you know where to spend money and where where you can save a bit. And uh, you know, gloves is a big one to save money on. You know, you can just get a good set of um, you know the, the 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 hardware gloves they have at Bunnings now are just fantastic, and they cost just about nothing. So exactly, yeah, I've got plenty of sets of gloves, and um, again, you can buy the cheap gloves, or you can spend. You know, you go and buy the. Seventy, eighty dollar gloves, they fall apart the same. Then you can go, and, like you say, you can go and buy the the cut resistant gloves from Bunnings for, for five or ten dollars, and they last for for years. Well, so. one, one thing I have actually done in the recent times is is spend a bit of money on a proper dive knife instead of buying the shit ones, um, because I, I get sick of rusting them out. I just think it's yeah. criminal criminal how bad oh. the quality is of the cheap ones. You just you only have to spend about maybe. Sometimes you can get them a bit cheaper, but generally, sort of fifty to eighty dollars will get you a good dive knife. Um, yeah, but- look, I definitely think um, the cheaper ones don't tend to last. But I've probably, like most bureaus, I reckon I've lost about two hundred dive knives in my career. You know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like falling off your leg, and you don't put them back in the holster properly, and then you lost them. So I've lost. I've been through a lot of knives where you, they might end up in someone else's tub after a day's dive, and you never see them again. And yeah. um, definitely, the best knife I ever had was. I bought it in America, and it was one of those titanium knives. Okay. Uh, sounds like a good option for you, actually, because they never rust. Like, <laughs> you can leave them in salt water forever, and they just don't rust. So, But they're quite expensive here. I think in America, I bought one for around about 50 bucks. I think over here, they're, sort of, they're 100 or 120. You don't really see a lot of them, but yeah, they're, they're fantastic. They're super sharp. They never rust. You never have to wash them out. Um, Love it. That does, 
That does sound good. All right, hey, last last three questions, Albie. I've been I've been keeping you up all night, probably you know away from your uh, other responsibilities. But um, Spiro Q and A is a sort of a faster paced round of questions. Um, what's the single biggest thing you've probably learned in in your twenty plus years spearfishing? What's one of the single biggest lessons you've learned? Um, probably just to when you go out, just to enjoy it and and realize that that you don't have to get fish to have a good day out on the water. Yeah. You don't put too much pressure on getting good fish. Some of the best days diving I've ever had is I've never come, I haven't even caught a fish or watching somebody else catch a good fish is always good. But just realizing that it's not about the fish, it's more about the experience of going out and you know seeing the beautiful sunrise and in, enjoying the water and, and the freedom that you get being able to go out and do the things that we love to do and, um, and, and having the availability and the access to the ocean like we do. I mean, we, we, we're blessed with the um, incredible, you know, amount of seafood and, and fish that we have. A lot of people don't realise, you know, how, how blessed we are and they take it for granted. So I think, yeah, just, just realising that you don't have to go out and slay everything and, and catch lots of fish or even catch one good fish to have a good day out on the water. It's just about being out there with with good like-minded people and hmm. just really Staying. enjoying enjoying yourself, you know. That's probably the best advice I can give to anyone, really. Staying grateful, it sounds like, too. So, no, awesome. Yeah. Um, what's, what's something a little bit different that you do than other guys you go diving with? What's a, something just a little bit different about Albie? A little bit different? Um, I don't know, really. I can't really think of anything. Um, possibly... Sometimes yeah. it's, sometimes it takes someone else to dob you in because you don't even realise what you're doing. But um, you know, some guys have got something about equipment they do, or their diving technique, or they've just thought a little bit more about something. Uh, is there anything like that for you that you can think of offhand? Um, I guess one of the things is I, pro I probably think is not to rush. I know a lot of guys maybe rush a little bit too much yeah. when they they're diving. I mean, I'm. As I say, I'm not the, not the best dive, but I don't think you need to really rush your dives and be the first in the water. And a lot of the time, you, you can, especially when you're comp diving and stuff like that, guys are very, very good. They'll, they'll get to a spot and, and before the boat's even pulled up and the anchors are in there, they've got their floats in, they're in the water, you know. But I think it's just a matter of not rushing and taking your time. And uh, I think that can pay off a lot too, um, just, just being calm and relaxed and, yeah, not putting too much pressure on yourself to to get um, get results, and I think that's when you really really do your best when the, when you don't have that pressure on yourself and you don't expect to get the biggest fish and you don't expect to win competitions or anything like that. It's just a matter of being out there, and that's probably why I have done so well because I'm just I'm just out there to enjoy it and you know not not put too much pressure on myself if anything. That's a big theme for the show, and uh, and they tie together well. I'll be a hey, last question. Um, what what's maybe your biggest current challenge, and how are you sort of approaching it with your with just in particular with your spearfishing? Uh, biggest challenge. Um, I don't really know. I, I don't really think there's too many. Um, you know, I just really, as I say, I just really like to to enjoy myself now and really plan my trips and. And, and do it with sort of like-minded people and, um, and and just, yeah, I'm just at a stage of my life where, you know, if I do a trip or, or take, um, you know, people out, I just really want to enjoy it and spend the time to, to show other people some of the things that I've learnt and 
some of the some of the locations that I know to dive and yeah, I, love I think it. just just a just a really um, you know enjoy it and and make the most of the time and yeah that's that's the beauty of spearfishing. I think it's one of those things like a lot of people have said before you can you can still do it until you're sixty or seventy or even eighty years old. It's just a progression of of getting better and better and and it gives you a reason to um, you know to stay fit and focused and, and just keep improving yourself all the time so awesome al awesome albie hey um people can come and obviously find you at the central coast sea lions it's on facebook um you guys have meetings on the fourth thursday of every month at the breakers country club dover Road, we do Wombarel. um i take it you get along to a lot of the meetings i do um and we do we have had up to 20 to 30 people turn up the meetings Awesome. Um, sometimes it can vary. A lot of the t- a lot of the times, it, there's sort of between maybe five to fifteen people. Awesome. I think a lot of people find it a bit difficult to get out on a you know a, a oh. weeknight, and it's cold, and they don't want to go out. And, yeah, hundred um, percent. So, but we've it's it's just about it. I think the sea lions have been lucky. The last I was the president for quite a few years, and then obviously Glenn, I took over from Glen Bath, and then um, we've had a fantastic president who's just been doing it for the last couple of years, Simon Horvath. Yeah. Um, very passionate, passionate guy, very knowledgeable and very dedicated and he, he's just done a great job with the club and, you know, he's one of those people that just shows up all the time and, yeah, yeah you, loves to dive, which is good. You guys seem to have a, a good bunch of proactive guys there as well. Like, you, you, you know, I remember we were de- you were dealing a lot with the, the lockout, the fishing lockout movement um, that was a big concern. You guys were pretty active getting involved with that. And uh, Yeah, one of the- that was mainly Simon, actually, that did all of that. Uh, Simon and Alex were the yeah, two. Right. Um, they were the two main instigators with that. They, they went over and above. Um, they were really fired up about that. So that was yeah. fantastic, yeah. Nah, it's awesome. Sometimes we've got to turn up and, uh, and, and you know, that's one of the great purposes of spearfishing clubs and they're a f- fantastic thing for new guys. So like I said, guys can come along and check out Central Coast Sea Lines on Facebook. Is there anywhere people can come and find you online, Albie? Are you on Facebook or Instagram or any of these other lovely social media tools we have? Yeah, look, I'm on, I'm on Facebook. I don't post a lot. Like a lot of the time if I do post up a fish or something like that, I'll mainly put it on the Sea Lines page. Okay. All right, well, I'll link that up in today's show notes. So if they search Alistair Cook, Noob Spiro, that'll come up in the show notes page. There'll be a link there to um, the Central Coast Sea Lions Facebook page. And um, awesome, Albie. Any, yeah, um, anyone, anyone's welcome to sign up to the Sea Lions page. I think we've um, – I started that probably about know, maybe 12, 15 years ago. Now I think we've got upwards of around 800 or 1,000 members. Jeepers. That's yeah, so we're going pretty well. Yeah, hey, awesome. Hey, um. Thanks for joining me, Albie. Uh, was there any parting piece of guidance for uh, any of the, the, the nuba audience out there, which aren't all noobs? But, uh, uh, yeah. yeah, look, I, I think it's just um, associating yourself with the right type of people when you want to get into diving, um, work out the path that you want to, want to take and, and just associate yourself with that, um, those type of people and, and really just enjoy yourself. Um, that's probably about all I can say, really. And Phenomenal. Yeah. All right, Albie. Well, um, thanks for joining me today. And like I say, if anyone wants to come and see maybe a couple of pics of Albie in his, in his heyday or even even some current pics, I'll, I'll try and link some up in today's show notes. So, AlistairCookNoobSpiro.com, come along. And, uh, yeah, thanks for joining me on the show today, Albie. 
Yeah, thanks. Thanks, Shrek. Appreciate it, buddy. It was um, really good to talk to you and um, really enjoyed it. So thanks very much. Ooh, that was a good one. I really like chatting with Albie or Alistair Cook. If you want to search anything that we chatted about today, it'll be in today's show notes, noobspiro.com. Come along there and you'll see up in the podcast section, it'll, if there's a drop-down menu, you can go to one of 107 interviews. Anything that you like, there's all sorts of flavours and um, different guests from all over the world. We're hoping to get a few more ladies on there because I got... Um, I got hassled the other day that we hadn't had enough females on here. I completely agree. Um, we've got a couple penciled in, but never mind. I'll get there in the future. I think in the next fortnight, we're back off to New Zealand to chat with Spiro camp man Julian Hansford, who is an absolute handful. And uh, we should have a good laugh with him. And uh, he's he sounds like a funny bloke and good mates with a couple of the people we've already had on the show so that should be fun i'm looking forward to chatting with julian in the next week or so so um any more suggestions or love send it noobspiro.com join the newsletter the floater newsletter you can keep up with the latest of the comings and goings on and last but not least thanks to our patrons on patreon.com forward slash noobspiro we've raised 520 dollars towards our melbourne trip this year really looking forward to going down there and shooting some fish with turbo meeting some people and doing a live interview so but that's for me over and out now i don't know about you but i love new gear and spearfishing.com.au have got a huge range mad flat shipping rate especially in australia and if you use the code noob Spiro, you not only support us but you get $20 off every purchase over $200. That's right, pump in the code NoobSparrow at checkout, N-O-O-B-S-P-E-A-R-O at spearfishing.com.au and you will save 20 bucks on every purchase over $200. No brainer, thanks Adriana.